What makes you normal or not in your society? Is there a normal? And if there is one, what makes it so? Well, a rule-breaking, renegade group of academics, adventurers, researchers, and authors began to redefine these things a century ago, and the world has never been the same. In fact, despite our past and present troubles, the world is clearly today, to me anyway, a lot fairer, a lot more compassionate, and a lot more tolerant than any time in recorded history. And I think a lot of that has to do with Franz Boas, Margaret Mead, Ruth Benedict, Zora Neale Hurston, and their ilk. Franz Boas, were you like me, unaware of that name? Well, I was at least, having never taken any courses in anthropology in my university days and pretty much being in the dark ever since. If Franz Boas is a name you do not yet recognize, dear listeners and fellow fools, you will come away about an hour from now with a much deeper understanding of how rule-breaking and rule-breakers really do open our eyes with the risks that they take, challenge our preconceived notions, and yes, leave the world, the campfire, much better off than when they first showed up. And our new friend, author Charles King, is here to help us learn his book, Gods of the Upper Air, our focus only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you with us this week. It is Authors in August. And earlier this month, I featured Shirzad Shamin and his book, Positive Intelligence. And then last week, we got to meet Michael Bungay Stanier and his book, Do More Great Work. Both of those sort of executive coach types coaching you and me how to see things more positively and how to do more great work. Well, this week, a horse of a different color, and that's what I love about this podcast, our opportunity to go anywhere, anywhere our whimsy takes us, as Dorothy Sayers once wrote, Lord Peter Whimsy, one of my favorite sets of detective books. But our whimsy this week is taking us to the world of anthropology. Now, I never did take a single course in anthropology as an undergrad, and I feel much the poorer for it. But one of the things we can do as adults is we can correct any mistakes we made, any blind spots we had in our formal education by reading and reading about the world, whether the world today or the world of the 20th century or well before that. We're going to be covering some of the 20th and 21st century in today's interview. So I'm joined now by a Marshall Scholar, a Fulbright Scholar, Phi Beta Kappa degrees from Oxford. For 25 years, Charles King has taught at Georgetown University, professional of international affairs and government, and recipient numerous times of teaching awards, which is greatly to his credit, to my eye, as well as previously serving as the chairman of the faculty of Georgetown's redoubtable School of Foreign Service. Now, Charles has written numerous books, often focused on Eastern Europe, which is in some ways what makes the focus of this week's podcast a bit surprising because his 2019 book, Gods of the Upper Air, seems something of a departure for him. Newer ground, not just for him, perhaps, but for many of us, me included. This book is on the rule-breaking development of anthropology and its emergence in the 20th century. And not only that, but Charles struck gold. Well, at least I hope some stipend was in order because Gods of the Upper Air won the Francis Parkman Prize in 2019, awarded by the Society of American Historians for, and I quote, the best book in American history each year, end quote. Charles, I'm delighted to be joining with you. Thank you so much. It's a real honor to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. And 
the the award was actually granted, I think, in June of 2024, your 2019 book. Charles, did you in fact come away with any gold, any stipend as your book won the Parkman Prize? Well, the the, the folks who organize the prize do include a stipend with it, and I was very grateful for that. But even even beyond that, just the recognition, I mean, the list of previous Parkman winners is just a kind of who's who of American historians. Myself not actually being an American historian, uh, it really meant, meant a lot that they would uh, put me in that number. I first got to meet you because our mutual friend Keith Hennessy, who has a wonderful book club here in Washington, D.C., and somehow manages to pull the authors in. Uh, maybe it's because we take out a private room in a nice restaurant and invite the author in. And that's when I got to meet you, Charles, on January 9th of 2020. It was five months later that you won that award. So I didn't know at the time you were going to win it. And I don't think either of us knew at the time that a global pandemic was was coming on. And boy, has the world changed a lot since January 9th of 2020. But I want to thank Keith again for the introduction. And Charles, the subtitle of your book pretty explicitly shows your focus. That is how a circle of renegade anthropologists reinvented race, sex, and gender in the 20th century. But would you first of all just explain how you selected your title, Gods of the Upper Air? Well, there is a bit of a story to that because um, the book was originally called something else. I had sold the proposal to my publisher, Doubleday, with a different title. Um, the The publisher didn't really care for the one I had originally chosen because titles are really important. They're the thing that sort of initially, you know, tells a reader what your book is uh, is going to be about. And as publica- the publication date was sort of steaming toward us, we didn't really have a title. And then I was reading. Um, the uh, the memoirs of Zora Neale Hurston, the novelist and social scientist who, um, you know, sort of star of the Harlem Renaissance, who turns out to be a very important character in the book. And she used this phrase, gods of the upper air, at one point in her memoir. And my wife, um, who was sitting on the couch at the time as I was reading this aloud, said, well, there's your, there's your title. And, <laughs> you know, and in fact, um, what Hurston is getting at in that phrase is learning to see the world from the perspective of on high. You know, sort of going up to a level where all of the kind of cares and categories of uh, our everyday life begin to disappear, and you begin to see kind of humanity um, as one undivided thing, and that, of course, is is really the the big theme of the book and the the theme of the of the people um, whose work I'm I'm trying to focus on in the book. And I really love that point, and we'll definitely return there later. Let's go to the start of well, it's the dawn of the 20th century. It's kind of where your books are. Certainly, you cover the latter portions of the 19th century, which really set up in so many ways the 20th century. But Charles, I guess I think we really have to put the shoes on, wear the clothes, pop on the pince-nez of the person there at the dawn of the 20th century. You truly see through their eyes at what the world looked like around them. The mindset of an educated person was so very different from the present day that, Charles, I want to share an excerpt from your book and then ask more comment from you. Here it is. And I quote, concepts such as race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, sexuality, and disability remain some of the most basic categories that we use to make sense of the social world. We ask about some of them on job applications. We measure others on census forms. We talk about all of them incessantly in 21st century America, in liberal arts classrooms, and on social media. But what we mean by them is no longer the same as in the past, end quote. So 
if you were an educated person at the beginning of the 20th century, you took certain things for granted because they were visions of the world that you would see if you walked into a museum, if you took a world history course, um, perhaps even in a sermon if you were in church on Sunday. And they were the following, that um, the world is divided into greater and lesser types of human beings. Um, that the basic division of humanity is a thing called race, and race is both inheritable, meaning that you you receive a race from your parents, and then you pass a race down to your children, and that the thing that you have received is hierarchically ranked around the world, meaning that there are some racial categories that are inherently suited to be world conquering and artistic and creative and, and owning businesses and running the world and other races that are fated to be backward. Um, you believed that um, gender came in uh, prepackaged um, varieties, and there were only two of them, um, and that those two were hierarchically ranked, that your gender assigned you to a set of life possibilities um, based on which one you happen to be uh, to be born with. So all of these ideas were there in museum displays. If you went to the Smithsonian, you saw it. You took a tour through human history and saw the ways in which people at the time of Northern European heritage and descent were the ones that were running the world and everybody else was ranked somehow um, below those folks. Mm. In fact, if you go to the Library of Congress, I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill right at the moment. If you go to the Jefferson Building, the big, ornate, beautiful building of the Library of Congress, you can walk around the outside of the building and take exactly that tour of human history. Because wow. Look up, you know, if you look up on at the keystones of the second story windows, you'll see a bunch of human heads, all of the men, by the way, um, human heads that are meant to represent the basic types of humanity. There are 33 of them that go ring around the, the building. And it's perhaps not surprising, knowing that that building opened in the 1890s, that people who are recognizably of Northern European heritage are on the front of the building, people of visibly Asian heritage wrap around the sides, and then people on the back of African and Melanesian descent. So you know, we were so sure of this ranking of races in America that we literally carved it in stone on the front of our greatest institution of human knowledge. And it is shocking to think about that, and yet it is so recent. When you just look back over the recent cast of history, just a century ago, a lot of the things we'll be talking about in yours and my lifetime, uh, and, and of course, a lot of the national conversation today is about how some of these things persist even into the present. We hope not the future. Foreign Affairs, the prestigious and influential journal in our world today, was originally called Journal of Race Development. I learned that from your book, Charles. The first published editions of the OED last century did not have, as you pointed out, entries for the words colonialism, homosexuality, or racism. So, you know, say what you will about the broken world we live in today, but I think to our credit, our eyes are open, at least open to all these things. We have words for them. Well, that's that's right. And and um, there is absolutely no doubt that um, an educated person now, a world aware, open minded person now thinks about the world differently from how such a person would have would have done um, a, a century ago. And in fact, that's the great paradox of the moment that we live in, that it is both a time of kind of awakening 
to these realities in our own history, the conversations we have about everything from the Civil War to Reconstruction to the Civil Rights Movement, um, to the place of people who think about um, gender or sexuality um, differently from others, all of these things are you know, part of this awakening in the moment that, that we happen to live in at the same time that we live in a moment of backlash against exactly those ideas that all of those that, you know, that, that dynamic would have been very familiar to the people I'm talking about in the book, because living in the 1920s and 1930s, as they were, it was also a time of incredible progress on each of these issues, race, gender, sexuality, you, you name it, how we think about the, the world and other, other cultures at the same time as the world was experiencing anti-immigrant backlash, the rise of Nazism in Germany, uh, the continuation of Jim Crow in the United States. So th- that dynamic, that give and take would have been very, uh, very familiar to them. Fascinating. And as you point out, and certainly the central figure in my mind of your book, although you so colorfully illustrate so many of the figures of this history, and that's something I deeply appreciate about Gods of the Upper Air, but Franz Boas who was he? What was the Boas circle? So Franz Boas was a German Jewish immigrant to the United States who arrived in the 1880s, um, having spent time uh, trying to be an amateur adventurer um, on Baffin Island in the Canadian Arctic, living for about a year and a half with Inuit populations there. He didn't really have any plan for his life other than he wanted to write some newspaper articles, maybe some uh, learned journal pieces, um, hopefully become a professor somewhere. But he had a fiance who was in the United States and so moved here to really to join her. And bounced around from uh, around a whole set of different jobs, from being an editorial assistant at uh, Science uh, Magazine to working on the Chicago World's Fair. And by the end of the 1890s, finally secured a position as a part-time professor at Columbia University and a curator at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And from that point, his career slowly uh, begins to take off. And he eventually becomes... Um, recognized as the founder of American anthropology and gathers around him a circle of um, geniuses, as it turns out, um, initially undergraduates and graduate students, but people who would go on to become in the 20th century some of the great social scientific minds from Margaret Mead on. Mm. And, you know, I love the application of the scientific method uh, to humanity, which is in a lot of ways how I read or how I parse anthropology. Again, I'll, I'll confess one final time, I never did take a single course in anthropology going through university, so I didn't really think about it too much. But closer to home, something that's always meant a lot to me was the application of the scientific method to baseball and baseball statistics done by Bill James, somebody <laughs> contemporaneous with us. It's a much smaller world, the world of baseball versus, well, the whole world but both Boaz and James and their ilk basically created revolutions by doing things like putting forward hypotheses, not accepting received truths, gathering data, and creating theories. And in a lot of ways, that's what Boaz was doing. You know, you point out as an explorer, basically, on Baffin Island, uh, an itinerant, somebody who sounds like he, he showed up there, so many of the, the 19th century explorers were interested in the climate. They were fascinated by it. It's the fifth largest island in the world. It's way up there in Canada, in the Arctic. There are, I, I was checking today, there are about 13,000 people living on Baffin Island even today, but a lot of them still Inuits. But so many of the people who'd come through before Boas were fascinated by the ecology and the geography. He was fascinated 
by the people. And that made him very different from the people who had preceded him. What did Franz Boas learn from the Inuits? Well, look, he was he was uh, spending time in this very inhospitable environment um, where you had to know how to survive. Someone had to show you how to survive, what was good to eat, how you you um, build a shelter in the middle of uh, winter. And it struck Boaz at some point during his time there that even though he had degrees from some of the best universities in the world, German scientific universities. He had a doctorate in physics. Here in this place, in the middle of winter, in an Inuit village, he was really stupid. Um, he wasn't even a fully formed human being. Um, he didn't know the things that you needed to know to be a proper adult in, in this environment. And from that personal experience, he began to spin out what would turn out to be, by the later 20th century, an entire theory of human society, that who we are depends very much on where we are, the social context we grow up in, the institutions that surround us, the habits that we inherit from parents and friends and colleagues, all of these things go into shaping who we are as individuals. And even though that seems like a very normal, commonsensical way of thinking <laughs> now, it wasn't at the time because, again, we go back to what you're being told in a museum or on the facade of the Library of Congress. You're being told that there is something inherent in you that you have inherited from your parents and their parents and their parents and so on that naturally makes you more fit or less fit um, in the world. And Boaz begins to say, actually, that's not the case. There is a thing called, in his language of the day, culture. We might call it society or habits or institutions that begin to shape us. And from that germ of an insight grows what will become the entire field of American cultural anthropology. Mm. You know, it was an act of humility on the, on the one hand, because his takeaway from Baffin Island was, we're no better than them. And in fact, in a lot of ways, he was, as you mentioned, completely inadequate in the circumstances in which he found himself. But it wasn't just humility. It was science. Well, f frostbite and starvation concentrate <laughs> the mind, as it turns out. And, and, um, and he realized, of course, that the stakes are very, very high. Um, you know, he could function really well in a tweed suit at the lectern, you know, um, he could function perfectly well in that culture, if you want to put it that way, in that environment, but taken yep. out of that, and he was a very different kind of, um, kind of person. In fact, he wasn't the same human being. He was a different human being when placed in a different context. And it's in fact that insight that then defines what we come to call anthropology, the study of human beings in their culture, cultural and social context. Mm. And I love the takeaway. I, I find myself quoting you. I'm going to keep doing it throughout our hour together because it's just so beautifully written. This is how you put it um, near the end of that section. And I quote, if it is now unremarkable for a gay couple to kiss goodbye on a train platform, for a college student to read the Bhagavad Gita in a great books class, for racism to be rejected as both morally bankrupt and self-evidently stupid, and for anyone, regardless of their gender expression, to claim workplaces and boardrooms as fully theirs, if all of these things are not innovations or aspirations, but the regular, taken-for-granted way of organizing a society, then we have the ideas championed by the Boaz Circle to thank for it, end quote. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, 
what we saw over the course of the 20th century, and this is why I wanted to write this book, is a revolution in common sense. You know, we often think about the progress that has been made on questions of race or ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, gender, um, ability, disability. We sometimes narrate those changes as being moral transformations, you know, that um, the world has come to think about each of these categories in more ethical, capacious, uh, morally defensible ways. But I think the way that Boaz and his circle would have described it and the way that it seems to me was actually the case was that it began with a scientific revolution that overturned our concept of common sense. And by that, I mean that to take it for granted that the world is not ranked according to race or gender or sexuality, <laughs> you know, that different societies think about these things in different ways, that the social context that you grow up in or work in um, determines how you behave um, to, a, to a, a very great degree. Uh, you know, a, again, in, in virtually every field, in the social sciences and business schools, you know, th- all of these insights have had a deep impact on um, how we see the world. And that began with the scientific changes that I'm trying to chronicle in the book. So well said, Charles. Thank you. I, I want to move back again to some more of the 20th century mentality because it's just so uh, informative, I think, not just for our conversation, but for contrasting 21st century mentality with it. But before we go there, why did you write this book, Charles? I'm looking back at your history, what you've written, where you focus this kind of came out of nowhere from my standpoint. So what was the germ or genesis of this book for you? Well, I think there are two. Um, one is that in 2008, I happened to marry an anthropologist. <laughs> and so, um, you know, Maggie Paxson, who is absolutely brilliant and the smartest person I know. And um, and let me give you one little story about that. Um, we were our breakfast table, our, our um, dinner table. They they tend to be kind of social science seminars with a, just with two two members, the two of us talking about big ideas and so on. And it, it's wonderful, you know. Um, I don't know how any visitor would see it, but we think that it's, that it's wonderful. And we were having a conversation as couples do about something ridiculous about drawing. That I'm terrible at drawing. She's very good as as an artist. And I say I said, you know. It's really hard to draw a horse. Like, why are horses so hard to to draw? You know, I just can't get. I, I couldn't couldn't draw a horse if my life depended on it. And she paused for a moment. She said, "Well, horses are no harder to draw than any other animal. It's just that we care what they look like." <laughs> I thought, wow! I thought, oh my god, that's exactly right. And. That is what a PhD in anthropology, you know, <laughs> will, will, it will get you an insight like that, which is exactly right. That you know, it, it is the culture that tells us getting this thing right is more important than getting the drawing of an amoeba right. <laughs> you know, um, that. so um, so anthropology has so many like mind blowing insights about that. That in fact, people are now applying to how organizations work, how businesses run. You know, there's a lot of insights that that can come into that. But the second thing is that um, I spent the 1990s and the early 2000s watching countries fall apart. 
Um, you know, I, I began uh, graduate school just at the time the Soviet Union was collapsing. Um, I traveled in former Yugoslavia when that place was falling apart. I've been in the Caucasus, um, riven by ethnic civil war, places where nationalism and questions of personal identity and backlash against changing social orders, where all of those things became matters of high politics to the detriment of the countries. And in the run-up to 2016 and 2014, 15, as I was beginning to think about this um, book project, it struck me that my own country had its own versions of exactly those problems. Now, we didn't call it nationalism. We called it race and racism. You know, um, we didn't call it ethnic politics. We called it something else. But the, the, um, the same dynamics, this fear of change, um, you know, the, the demographic transformations in a country and the, the backlash against those natural transformations and social orders, um, I began to see that happening all around me. Um, and so I wanted to delve into the history of this country to see if there was an American response to American-produced chauvinism and prejudice. And the story of the Boaz Circle is the story of American solutions to particularly American problems. Mm. Brilliant connection. And it gave rise to this book of history, which, well, now is history. Speaking of history, a key part of the early 20th century mentality, Charles, was captured in this short passage early in your book, I'm quoting it because let's talk about it. Quote, the idea of a natural ranking of human types shaped everything, school and university curricula, court decisions and policing strategies, health policy and popular culture, the work of the Bureau of Indian Affairs and U.S. colonial administrators in the Philippines, as well as their equivalents in Britain, France, Germany, and many other empires, countries, and territories. To wit, then, what is anthropometry and what was the cephalic index? So anthropometry, not to be confused with anthropology, anthropometry was the attempt to measure human bodies and then to correlate those measurements with intelligence or fitness for creativity and civilization and so on. And it was all the rage in the late 19th and even into the early 20th um, century. And the cephalic index was a measurement of your um, head shape that was thought also to relate to uh, uh, propensity for criminality or intelligence and, and so on. There was a belief at the time that, you know, the outward physical body, the way your body appeared to somebody else was a clue to what was going on inside your deepest uh, persona. And of course, we wouldn't believe that now, but there was, there was a massive literature about that at the time. Charles, is there much I can learn from the shape of your skull? Um, you know, I don't know. My, I think I have a very big head, but I don't know. That, <laughs> I don't know. At, at least from my, um, my, my, every time I, I buy a hat, I always have to go to the large. <laughs> I don't know if that tells you anything. It has nothing to do. We know it has nothing to do with intelligence or creativity or anything like that. It just has to do with genetics. Thank you. Let, let's now move on to what I think is a hugely important subject in your book. Of course, great cultural importance in our world today. One word, race. So let me start by asking you, as you tell the story in your book, and I lazily had never bothered inquiring, why are so-called white people referred to as Caucasians? Well, it's an interesting story, and it makes absolutely no sense other than <laughs> as um, a part of the weird inheritance of this thing called race. It all goes back to the 18th century uh, to one German anatomist named Blumenbach, 
who, um, uh, in the attempt to determine how many races there were in the world, and this among um, anatomists and um, and uh, people who we would later, later call biologists, weren't called that at the time, um, this was all the rage, trying to divide the world into natural um races in the same way that we would divide other species, you know, into species, kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, and all of these different mm. categories. Um, and he, in studying a collection of human skulls that he had at his university in Germany, came across one skull that he found to be just perfect, just like, so beautifully formed. It had to be the one that God had originally created from which every other type of human being had descended. These people, by the way, in the 18th century were, were, were what we might call devolutionists rather than evolutionists. They believed hmm. that God had created, created perfection and everything else had uh, sort of devolved from that. And it turned out this skull was from a young woman from the Caucasus Mountains um, at the intersection of Turkey, Iran, and, um, and, and the Russian Empire at the time. Um, and so he used this label Caucasian from the Caucasus Mountains for people we would later come to call white. And that simply became the scientific term that stuck. And it fit with all sorts of other ideas at the time that maybe the Garden of Eden lay there somewhere. And that's where the original act of creation um, had taken had taken place. And then every other type had kind of descended from that original perfect white person. And race, as you write on page 80, was never just a matter of classifying people by appearance. However, it had long been associated, we've kind of already talked about this, but with other traits such as your physical ability, your intelligence, your language, and your level of civilization. Now, there was an incredibly influential book that I'm sure you've read, or at least parts of, that I had never heard of before called The Passing of the Great Race. The author was Madison Grant. And I think in particular, what jumped out to me about his work, and I would love for you to share a little bit more about, for those of us who had never heard of Madison Grant before, the past and the great race, we need to learn from you right now. But it was fascinating to me that most of all, he was drawing distinctions important to him about the better and worse variations, in quotes, better and worse variations of white people themselves. Well, so Madison Grant was um, a an American philanthropist, um, do-gooder, uh, one of the founders of the Bronx Zoo, friend of Teddy Roosevelt at the beginning of the, of the 20th century, and living in New York at the time, um, and having spent time in the American West, understanding the ways in which natural habitats can um, can be destroyed by uh, by incomers and invading species, he was mm. struck that there was some kind of uh, parallel to what he was witnessing in New York. This was at the time, of course, of the great immigration surge, the time of Ellis Island and so forth, coming to the United States of people from Southern and Eastern Europe. And he began to be worried about what would happen to the noble American species, just like the bison and the elk, um, with all of these newcomers uh, coming in. Of course, to him, the great uh, noble American species happened to be people exactly like him, people of Anglo-Saxon, as people would have said at the time, um, descent and heritage. Hmm. And so he wrote this book called The Passing of the Great Race, published in 1916, which became a huge bestseller. Everybody read it. It was one of those books, you know, there, there are a few books every year that have to be on your coffee table or your bookshelf. This was, this was one of those big books of the moment, in which he argued that countries that restrict immigration of lesser types 
Of course, it went without saying to him that non-white races were lesser types. But even within the the, the umbrella category of white, um, restricting people who weren't of Anglo-Saxon uh, background or Nordic or North European background, that the country would preserve itself best the fewer number of those other uh, types you let into the country. And it became central to debates in the 1920s about um, the about immigration reform and, the, and, and in fact, the anti-immigration laws that came into force by the middle of the 1920s. And that book went on to have a huge, um, in fact, global impact because in country after country, if you were looking for an argument for how to restrict immigration and how to preserve your racial essence, particularly in Northern Europe, you turn to Madison Grant. And as part of the research for this book, I went to the Library of Congress in the rare books room. And if you go there today, you can do the same thing. You can hold in your hands Adolf Hitler's copy of the passing of the great race signed to Adolf um, Hitler. This turned out mm. to be actually really important in um, in Hitler's thinking because the book was translated into German exactly at the time that Hitler was uh, writing Mein Kampf. Um, so, you know, this goes back to the point we were making earlier that these ideas were not fringe, you know, they, they were actually the scientific and political consensus of the day. Um, and, you know, that's how you have to understand everything from Jim Crow to anti-immigration legislation of the 20s. This was what the power structure at the time believed to be true. And that was such an eye opener for this American that in 1925, Austrian radical Adolf Hitler, inspired by the passing of the Great Race, wrote a letter to Grant calling it and in quotes, my Bible. Yeah, I mean, and historians have done a terrific job in the last few years, a number of really wonderful historians focusing on the American influence on German politics and the development of Nazi ideology. In fact, it turned out that in the 1930s, um, you know, Nazi uh, uh, lawyers and um, biologists and demographers were deeply studying the United States. And that makes sense when you think about it, because they were in the process of building a racially ordered state. So why wouldn't you study the country that, as Hitler actually says in Mein Kampf, the country that comes close to getting race right is the United States? Because no country in the world had a more perfected system of racial categorization. We asked about it on censuses um, of segregation in schools and train cars and theaters and, you know, you name it. And in the segregated United States, not just in the old South, by the way, but all across the United States, no country had a more widespread system of preventing marriage um, across racial lines. And by mm. the way, if we think this is ancient history, it, it was the year I was born that it became fully legal in the United States and all of the United States for people to marry across racial lines. You know, so when people talk about, you know, re-narrating the history of race in this country, we're not talking about a radical idea. We're actually just talking about coming to a, a more clear-eyed understanding of the way in which race has worked historically in the United States. It is stunning, Charles. And to put a capper on that, again, I just quote this line from you, kind of concluding that section, quote, the Germans were working diligently to understand how the United States had gotten racism so right, end quote. That, that's exactly right. I mean, you, you, might, you might say that 
you know, the, the Nazi Germany created some of the first area studies programs in the United States, that they were going abroad to study how this foreign country had done things so that they could emulate it um, in, in Germany itself. And, uh, you know, so they had uh, study abroad programs, they had scholarships for, um, for doctoral students who could come to the United States, particularly to Southern universities, to study how Jim Crow worked. You know, one of the things that's always confounded me is that we're all, well, so many of us are mutts. And there's a default assumption in our culture, it seems, that we're measured, and I'm thinking about U.S. 21st century right now, that we're measured sometimes by our whiteness. So let me explain. Actually, I don't need to because page 90 kind of makes it clear where this came from. Madison Grant's book a century ago set this in motion, and I quote, the cross between a white man and an Indian is an Indian. The cross between a white man and a Negro is a Negro. The cross between a white man and a Hindu is a Hindu. And the cross between any of the three European races, so it turns out there are three in Europe, and a Jew is a Jew. Here's a question for you, Charles. How many human races are there? <laughs> well, you know, that, that's a great question. And it's, um, and it's one that my students sometimes ask. I teach a course on race, race, ethnicity and nationalism. And they always want to know what the, the right answer to that um, question is. <laughs> and of course, th the only right answer to that question is zero. That, um, that in fact, if, we, if, what, if what we mean by race is the early 20th century version, which is a biologically real and inheritable essence to you called a race that then you pass down to your children along the lines of the quote from Madison Grant that you were just reading, that is absolute nonsense. There is no such thing. If we mean, on the other hand, the way in which um, race, in, in a way, race is a verb. That is, how do you get raced? Or how, does, how do you get assigned to a category? What is race as a social concept? Of course, that's very real, at least in the United States. And different countries do it in different ways. But there is no universal number of races that, that is applicable in every, in every country. In fact, all of those categories, as the book tries to show, is uh, all of those categories are products of a specific history, set of power relations, culture, if you want to, um, if you want to call it that. In fact, even if you go back to Darwin, Darwin, and I think it's the Descent of Man, he has a whole passage in which he makes fun of the attempt to determine how many races there are. And he has this beautiful paragraph where he says, well, some people say there are two, and he gives a citation. Some people say there are seven, he gives a citation. Some people say there are 21, gives another citation. So we ought to be skeptical about whether human beings are naturally divided into these categories. So well said. I'm glad that you said that. And I'll tell you, after reading your book, the few times I've filled out forms since reading your book in 2019, I no longer answer the race question because I think it's a silly question. And I realize that's sort of a radical stand in some ways. And in other ways, it's completely historically and scientifically defensible. So uh, that's my own little stand brought on by you. Well, you know, I, I go I go back and forth on this because on the one hand, I hate those questions. I absolutely hate them. And uh, the fact that we still have predetermined boxes on a census, for example, um, you know, just reinforces this biological idea. So, for example, students come into my classroom at Georgetown. These are fabulous students. These are some of the best students in the country. And they have learned in school to say race is a social construct, that they know that to be true. But 
what that means in practice or, you know, they still want race somehow to be to, to be biological, to have like a biological reality to it mm. and to be fundamentally different from a thing like ethnicity or nationality. You know, I give them I give them a little quiz, you know, a whole set of things, race, gender, nationality, ethnicity, membership in the Star Trek fan club. You know, which, which, is, which one of these categories is the easiest thing to change, which is the hardest? And they always put race as the hardest. And then I ask them why. And somebody will always say, well, because race is biological, you know, is inherited from your your parents. So we still teach kids that idea. And it's things like those boxes on the census that reinforce that. On the other hand, um, I'm a person who would be identified as white in a social, in any social context. And in a way, I want that to be recorded. I want that fact to be acknowledged from a kind of social or power or privilege point of view. And so I'm always torn, um, on how to, on how to answer that question. You know, it's, it's a product of our history. It's a product of the continuing ways in which we believe that race has this biological essence to it, even though we've learned better and we've learned to say that it doesn't. Hmm. You know, maybe the most important paragraph for me anyway, in this whole section, and I'll, I'll quote this reads as follows, quote, without homogeneous, easily identifiable quotes, races, the entire edifice of racial hierarchy crumbled. Quote, and this is quoting Boaz, the differences between different types of man are on the whole small as compared to the range of variation in each type. Boaz concluded, I keep going here, not only was there no bright line dividing one race from another, but the immense variation within racial categories called into question the utility of the concept itself. Once you really tried to define what a race was, much less quantify it with calipers or measuring tapes, you found that you were holding ashes in your hands, end quote. Exactly right. And this goes back to, you know, Boaz being um, employed by Congress at the beginning of the 20th century to do a series of studies to try to understand how immigration, this mass of Ellis Island immigration, was affecting the American body politic, if you like. You know, were Americans physically becoming different because of reproduction across racial or ethnic um, lines? And what he found um, published in a, in a rather obscure, but as it turns out, very important report in 1911, was that children born in the United States had more in common physically, if you measured, took all these body measurements, they had more in common with other American children than they did with members of the same racial type who still lived back in their country of origin. Now, to us, this seems obvious, meaning that, of course, um, you know, maternal uh, nutrition and uh, prenatal care and all sorts of things. And, and then what happens in the first six months or a year of a child's life is hugely important in determining the physical structure of that body as the child um, grows up. But that wasn't understood at the time. And in fact, it struck a blow at the idea of the physical reality of race. Because just in that, as in that passage you just quoted, if in fact you can't assign people to obvious racial categories based on their physical structure, then how could you attribute intelligence or civilization or any other thing to this? It did, it cr crumbled in your hands as soon as you were trying to do it. But mm. by the way, one final point on this, 
we look back, you know, and kind of smile wryly at those sort of silly people in the early 20th century who believed differently. But keep in mind, you know, the news story from just a few weeks ago that the NFL was still doing race norming on questions of the cognitive impact of of, 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 of on players of, you know, being bashed and beaten during mm-hmm. um, a football game. So this idea of the biologized nature of race is not at all ancient history. It's, um, it's still very much um, around. And by the way, the place that I really wish would, would require anthropology courses along these lines is medical schools. Um, because I think that's an area where the old racist ideas are, are, are really still kind of there and deeply ingrained in people in ways that people don't obvious, uh, see, see as obvious. Mm, compelling point. I had not thought of that. I love how you ended this section. Uh, you, you referenced this line earlier. It speaks to me anyway. That's why I double underlined it on page 310, the simple sentence. Quote, the strongest moral schemas rest on the proven truth that humanity is one undivided whole, end quote. That's right. You know, the, there, this book is about science and scientists and how they change our common sense, but it has a moral uh, point at its core. And in fact, I think their theories and their ideas and their research also had a moral point. Um, but the morality follows from the science, not the other way around. That, you know, the reason you be an anthropologist or you throw yourself into a situation like on Baffin Island where you're intentionally, you intentionally make yourself stupid is so that you begin to get off your own high horse, you know, to see your own society and its foibles and its weirdnesses and the things that it takes for granted as being not universal. Um, as being very, you know, specific to your time and place. And that opens up an incredibly capacious sense of morality because th- you then begin to understand other societies and, and, and places and, and, and cultures um, on their own terms and begin to make sense of them. That doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that is happening in some, in some other place, but you, you do first need to understand why it's happening. And I, I love that point, and I see it reverberating through a lot of things around me. Uh, listeners of this podcast can think back just just a couple of weeks ago when Shirzad Shamin talked about one of the sage powers that we can all bring to bear that we have within us that we should be using is curiosity, is exploring. And he says specifically, be a cultural anthropologist in a situation where you find yourself behaving in some strange manner or you don't like somebody else's actions or what they're saying. Step back and be curious about that. Or I think about a lot of the power behind Amazon.com, which has been powered for most of its history by Jeff Bezos, who has championed the idea of beginner's mind, not making assumptions about how people want to buy what they want to buy or how your user interface should look, but being curious about it. Taking the Franz Boas on Baffin Island approach of being a beginner by intention. Yeah, we would we would want other people to behave with us in exactly that way. We would want people to think that we did things for a reason, that um, our behavior made sense to us, that um, our gods and our obsessions um, were there because they did something for us, not because we were 
idiots or or not because we were being evil but you know and so in any social situation or for that matter political situation or a business situation or organizational transformation situation beginning with trying to understand human motivations and mindset um, as your starting point. And that's all I think being a cultural anthropologist meant to, to these individuals. And by the way, their method was simple, but revolutionary, especially in the context in which they were doing. And the method was, Mm. the method was just this, shut up, (laughs) you know, like, (laughs) like be quiet for a moment, live in a place, listen to why people are doing things, try to understand things from from their perspective, and then write all of that up in an empathetic way. That's social science at its best. And I think it has a lot to teach us in the world of morality and ethics, too. Thank you for that. You know, Zora Neale Hurston, who, by the way, a graduate of Washington, D.C. zone, Howard University, very much in the headlines. If Howard is a stock, I'm buying that stock today. Great to have their presence as a historically black university here in the nation's capital. Zora Neale Hurston, you quote her as calling herself a child that questions the gods of the pigeonholes. And that's a lot of the theme that runs underneath our conversation today, pigeonholing and questioning pigeonholing she wrote and you're quoting her i'm quoting you quoting her she wrote negroes were supposed to write about the race problem i was and am thoroughly sick of the subject she she later wrote my interest lies in what makes a man or a woman do such and so regardless of his color it seemed to me that the human beings i met she wrote reacted pretty much the same to the same stimuli different idioms yes inherent differences no Right. Well, she was, she in so many ways, Hurston is kind of the, the beating heart of this book. I mean, from the, from the title on down, because people know her as a novelist, you know, she, uh, their eyes were watching God is a novel that, you know, school, high school kids in the United States read is one of the great works of American literature. Um, but in this book, she's a social scientist because having studied at Howard, then graduating from Barnard College in New York, she fell into the Boaz circle at Columbia and started um, to do a PhD in anthropology. She never finished it, but she did go on expeditions of her own to Jamaica and Haiti and New Orleans and other parts of the American South to try to um, study local cultures there. And she is a brilliant nonfiction writer in addition to, to being a novelist. You know, And she has this kind of ability, I think, um, to jump off the Boazian high dive, if I can put it that way, like to really, really try to suspend your disbelief and try to inhabit another culture or place. She is, by the way, the first person ever to photograph a zombie, um, a photograph that appeared in Life magazine and then in one of her books on, on Haiti. Um, and what she meant by that, she met a woman who was described locally as a zombie. Um, and for Hurston, this meant... Um, trying to understand what that category in the context of Haiti at the time really meant, not trying to think of, you know, the supernatural or extra-worldly versions of that category, but why does a society create a category of the living dead where people seem to use that category 
in, in important ways. And of course, for Hurston, a woman who grew up in Jim Crow, Florida, who lived in Washington, D.C., working as a, as a waitress um, at the, at the uh, exclusive Cosmos Club here in D.C., then uh, you know, a, a leading light of the Harlem Renaissance, who was just unknown then to the other students once she would come into that seminar room at, at um, overwhelmingly, almost exclusively white Columbia and Barnard at the time. She knew what it meant to be the living dead. She knew what it meant to be a person who was invisible, you know, to everybody else around you. And so that's what I mean by the high dive, beginning to see things, categories that look really weird and strange to you as meaningful in their context. And so, you know, in the passage you read from Hurston, by the way, if you think American categories aren't weird, you mean this biological thing called race that I inherit from my parents and then pass down to my children? I don't know where it lives. I can't describe it, but it seems to have an impact on my intelligence and my ability to get a job and the ability to vote. Geez, that looks like a supernatural category to me. And that's what they were so good at pointing out. Not um, not the, the the way in which other societies are always models for one own one's own society. They might not be at all, but the way in which we can change the way we do things by making ourselves weird. Mm. So she was one of the bright lights of the 20th century who studied under Franz Boas and was at Columbia. At a certain point, Boas starts to lose his social capital at his own university and starts getting defunded. But one of the interesting things to me about that time is that it seemed like the women studying under him, specifically more so than the men, it was it was a woman-led circle that all of a sudden starts to popularize him, and they start to get published, and they're Margaret Mead, and they're Ruth Benedict. And it's a fascinating thing to reflect on. Why was Boaz losing social currency at his own university? Well, Boaz was the kind of person who always made administrators uh, mad. And, um, you know, I've been a department chair and there are sometimes sometimes difficult colleagues and Boaz was absolutely a difficult um, colleague. Then that kind of went along with his brilliance in some ways. But, you know, he would write letters to the editor of the New York Times on various outrageous subjects having to do with the politics or international affairs of the day. Um, he was a great opponent of the First World War. He couldn't figure out why the United States was preferring British imperialism to German imperialism. That just didn't make any sense to him. He, by the way, you know, in the two world wars, the two bits of his identity um, were targets. So he was German and Jewish. And so in the First World War, he experienced living in the United States what it was like to be, you know, a deeply unloved minority. That's, you mm. know, a not a, a not often told story about what happened to German Americans during the First World War and their exclusion. They're being targeted by uh, by the United States government and so on. He experienced that firsthand. And then, of course, during the Second World War, being the most hated and unloved minority as a Jewish man, although living safely in the United States, in his own homeland as the Nazi party rose in Germany. So, you know, all of these folks in one form or another were outsiders. And that turned out to be really important to the way that they saw the world. Um, the revolutionaries do not come from the people at the center of power. The revolutionaries come from the people who have a view from, uh, you know, out of the corner of their eye um, of, of what's going on. And it's a clearer way of seeing things. By the way, all of them at 
some point in their lives had exactly the same experience. Um, you know, Boaz as a German Jewish immigrant at a time of anti-immigrant backlash, Hurston as the only black student at Barnard, Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, by the way, two, two of the other characters in the book who are in this loving same-sex relationship at a time when that had to be uh, kept, kept quiet. Um, they all experienced the same thing. They, at some point they said, wait a minute, all of the struggles I'm having in life um, are either because of my own deviance and ineptitude that, you know, there's something wrong with me that is causing me to have problems in my job that I can't move forward in my profession, or there's something about you know, the relationship between me and the institutions, culture, society in which I happen by chance to have been born, that I'm fine. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm a, an integral fully formed human being. But there's something about my fit into where I happen to have been dropped by by fate. And that is the beginning of this idea that, oh, yeah, that where we are is a big part of determining who we are and our life chances. And um, and the study of that, you might say, is, is a huge leap forward in, in American social science and, for that matter, American common sense. American common sense, indeed. And on the one hand, it seems so commonsensical that we're so based on and related to and influenced by where we happen to be born. And yet, it's also so hard to remember that sometimes, even at a national conversational level. Well, as we move toward close, Charles, I definitely want to open it up briefly to sex and gender. You just kind of did it there with Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict. So I want to get there. We're running out of time, of course. But before we go there, I do want to just mention that in part of my preparation for this interview, Charles King, I went back checking Columbia University, having it on my mind. And did you know that there was a a university president in the 19th century named Charles King of the Columbia University? <laughs> yes, yes, in fact. Um, you know, and there was also a writer on the American West. And so, you know, occasionally on my Google <laughs> Scholar citations, we'll have some obscure work about the Plains Wars that will pop up as, you know, in Google Scholar citations. That's the Got it. So case. speaking of, the, therefore, um, being a descendant and genetics and all this, you are not to confirm, not a descendant of Charles King, the, the university president of Columbia. So far as I know, but I was adopted when I was three days old. So you know, who knows? Who knows? Uh, you know. Well said. Well said. All right. Now I want to share with you yet another quote from your book. This one jumped out to me as we start to talk a little bit about deviancy, if you will, whatever that means, and sex and gender. So I quote, Western society was obsessed with seeing people as types of some deeper innate reality. Gender was no more than another version of race or head shape. One more way of reducing individual ability by corralling it. A civilization, Margaret Mead concluded in her work, Sex and Temperament, a civilization might take its cues not from such categories as sex, race, or hereditary position in a family line, but instead of specializing personality along such simple lines, recognize, train, and make a place for many and divergent temperamental endowments, end quote. That's a little bit of a mouthful, but you just continue on a little bit from there. To do otherwise wasn't at base a matter of injustice or oppression, as it would later be labeled, although it produced plenty of both. It was just a terrible waste, a vast squandering of talent, energy, and aptitude, all bottled up inside people who were forced to live their lives as tragically less than, 
end quote. So she was trying to get at the idea that if we would just take off what Boaz called our culturbrilla, our, our cultural lenses for a moment, and begin to see people as people and talents as talents and abilities as abilities, we will look around us and discover suddenly all of the walls that we have created, both both mental, cognitive, as well as literal walls to keep people from realizing those uh, that potential. You know, we've had a transformation in the United States on questions of um, sexuality um, over the last decade. We've had a transformation or continuing transformation over questions of gender. And, you know, Mead was kind of at the forefront of helping us see those things. We've had a transformation over the question of, of, of disability, you know, over the last 30 years in, uh, in the United States. And once you begin to see the problem, not as a, as a moral one, primarily, but to see it as a matter of how do I make my organization, my country, my business, my school better by unleashing the talent that I have, because of my cultural lenses, um, put behind a wall. Mm. That's a way of seeing things. So, for example, you know, um, you think of the Americans with Disabilities Act and the, the revolution in common sense that um, through the the, the 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 bravery and activism of um, so many people for so long helped other Americans begin to see that, for example, if the only thing preventing the expression of talent in an organization is a staircase, why wouldn't I remove that staircase and make a ramp? You know, is the only thing that is preventing kids being loved in a secure and beautiful and, and, and loving environment, a particular vision of what constitutes from a state point of view, a thing called marriage, why wouldn't I make that more capacious? So this revolution in um, common sense uh, was a thing that the Boaz Circle, Mead, and others were really trying to get us to see. And we're beginning, I think, to see um, how that might work in lots of domains of American life. What do you think our present day national conversation, if you will, Charles, what do you think we see really well now, perhaps for the first time? And what don't you think we are seeing? Well, I think, you know, in the same way that we look back on those museum displays from a century ago or look at um, the obvious overt racists like Madison Grant from a century ago and kind of either shake our heads or laugh at them, of course, our grandchildren and great-grandchildren will do exactly the same thing to us. We are all, in our way, museum pieces. And so trying to have a sense of what that might be you know, down the road. And, and, and I think the thing that immediately comes to mind is, of course, the, the environment and, um, and for that matter, non-human animals. Um, I think it is, we will not think the same way a century from now, if we make it, um, about, um, about the other creatures that inhabit this planet and about the planet itself in exactly the same way we think about it. Now, our hierarchy of, of those things will be different. Our sense of what is urgent and morally correct, I think, will be very, very different too. So um, all of these things are kind of scary. <laughs> you know, they, they really are because they take us from the top of the pile 
and hmm. say, no, we're actually situated in history. And we change over time. And our sense of right and wrong does, in fact, change over time. It's not timeless. But there are senses of right and wrong. There are things called ethics and morality. It's just that they're shaped by a whole variety of different factors um, from the ones that we often think. And at the core of that, the core of that is the belief in an undivided set of human beings who have the capacity because of our brains uh, to change the world that we live in. We don't have to accept our social world as we find it. We have the capacity to change it. Beautifully said. And I want everybody listening to me right now to know that while I'm often reading from excerpts from Charles's book, or I'm reading my own questions that I've scripted out ahead of time, Charles is simply speaking off the cuff throughout this entire interview, and you can hear the eloquence of the man and why, indeed, he is more than worthy, I think, of the Parkman Prize awarded just last year. And I'm so honored and delighted to have been sharing this hour with you, Charles. You know, I love the final paragraph of your book, Charles. We'll get to that in a sec. But I do want to say, um, when you talk about whole aspects of humanity being unleashed, that stored up potential energy of the ignored, the downtrodden, those who didn't rank in the past. And then you think about them being opened up and all of a sudden becoming entrepreneurs, becoming people who have capital, whether financial, human, or social, to do stuff in the world. It's part of the reason I've been such a bull for the last 25 years as a stock market investor and why I will remain so over the next 25 years. In particular, I think one of the, the great unleashing of energies of our time is women. And women in the workplace, when you and I were born, Charles, right near each other somewhere in the mid-60s, perhaps, women didn't really have jobs and weren't welcome. They'd only gotten the vote a few decades before. But you think about taking about, well, actually slightly more than half of all humans on planet Earth, and not every society is getting this yet. But And you start saying, they have incredible value to add professionally in addition to all the other things they do. Yeah, that makes me pretty bullish for conscious capitalism. All right. Well, I, as I mentioned, I love the final paragraph of your book, and I feel like I've been stealing your fire all hour long by reading your own stuff to you. Uh, I hope everyone knows Charles is writing these things, not I. But I wanted the final paragraph to just appear here on the podcast, and I thought, let's have Charles himself read the way he ended his Parkman Prize award-winning book, Gods of the Upper Air. Charles, would you share with us the final paragraph? You bet. Here it goes. With the benefit of hindsight, it is easy to see racial science, eugenics, colonialism, and the excesses of nationalism for the misguided things they were, and in their modern guises, still are. The more difficult thing, even for committed cosmopolitans, is to recognize in oneself the errors that Boaz and his students were trying to correct. I have seen and heard, Hurston wrote in a passage deleted from her autobiography, I have said in judgment upon the ways of others, and in the voiceless quiet of the night, I have also called myself to judgment, end quote. The most enduring prejudices are the comfortable ones, those hidden up close. But seeing the world as it is requires some distance, a view from the upper air. Realizing the limitations of your own culture, even if it claims to be cultureless and global. Feeling the power of prayer if you reject someone else's God. Understanding the inner logic of bewildering political preferences. Sensing the worry and depression, the disquiet and rage 
caused in other people by the very outlooks on reality that seem wholly natural to you, these are skills built up over a lifetime. Their promise is that with enough effort, we might come to know humanity in all its complexity, in fits and starts, with dim glimpses of a different world appearing through the mist of custom, changing us, unseating us, in a way, destroying us. The baffling, terrifying liberation of home truths falling away. And I wrote that paragraph in that way, and I wanted to end the book that way, in some ways as a message to other um, world-aware um, people who believe themselves to be cosmopolitans. Because, you know, this book is also for people who already think of themselves as living in a culture-less or capacious or open-minded kind of way. Because you will always be able to identify people, whether it's folks of a different political persuasion or people who, you know, who, who, who believe different things from you, whose ideas about the world seem either abhorrent or strange or bizarre. And the lesson of the Boaz Circle is to do the hard work of trying to understand those people too. Think about how ridiculous it seemed in the early 20th century to go around the world and suggest that folks on Baffin Island or in American Samoa, where Margaret Mead went, uh, have something to tell enlightened 20th century America. Well, there are lots of places in the world and ways of seeing the world that I think we need to sharpen our ability um, to understand. Doesn't mean you have to end up agreeing with it. But understanding why people believe what they do is important for liberals and for world-aware cosmopolitan people who believe themselves to be that just as much as it is for people that we might think of as benighted and in the thrall of tradition. Charles King, thank you for joining us this week on Rule Breaker Investing. Thank you so much. I'm just delighted to be with you. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.